Welcome, listeners, to the second leg of our journey with the International Six Meter. We hope you enjoyed this first session as a kickoff for Season 2. Thanks, listeners, for pushing our subscribers into four figures. And enjoy the expanded photo section of each episode. The Six Meter has to be the most photogenic of all watercraft. And please check out our Instagram page at the familiar Conversations with Classic Boats. Here in Season 2, we have a lot of new things going for you. In Part 1, we explored the long and winding road of how the 6-meter came to develop under the evolving international rule. We learned about the Dean of American Yacht Designers in the first quarter of the 20th century, Clinton Crane, as he competed with a whole stable of newly minted designers, be they Frederick Hoyt or Gardner or Payne. And we saw the new Corinthian Sailors Yacht Club, born in America, become the crossroads for the lively group of characters involved in the six-meter class, the Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club in Oyster Bay, North Shore of Long Island, New York, 39 miles east of Manhattan. I visited Sawanica in the dead of December 2020. North out of town, over the causeway that separates Long Island Sound from West Harbor, take a right, past the houses of the Gilded Age. Now Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen are the club's neighbors. I kid you not. Let's set the scene for you at Sawanica. The club sits high above Oyster Bay, the way New York Yacht Club's harbor court looks out over Newport Harbor. When I'm sailing there in the Newport 29 Dolphin, in Oak Cliff Sailing's classic racing, the north end of the starting line is a line sight up to the club's flagpole, 60 feet up the bank. The building is authentically from the Gilded Age. It was designed by Stanford White, architect to Gold Coast moguls, and it is in the National Registry of Historic Places. As imposing as it is on the outside, it is intimate inside. Every room is chock-a-block with marine memories. I was fortunate to have as my guide former Commodore Hugh Jones, with his encyclopedic knowledge of the club's contents. Swanica has a local membership that is much smaller than many of its rivals on Long Island Sound. But to my eye, it has a large fleet for a small club, several dozen sonars for members, and two boatyards, one for big boats, one for smaller. And there in December bobbed a set of dedicated laser sailors out in the Oyster Bay, braving the cold and worse lack of wind. There's SciTech dollies bobbing at the high tide line back at the launch ramp. But most important, Sawanica has an outsized importance in the history and development of our clash in question, the six meter. Hugh Jones is the owner of the Vintage Six Madcap, and he's also the club's adopted historian, knowing his way around every inch of the two floors of rooms. And he can explicate the yachting photos, one for each of the club's Commodores dating back to 1871, not to mention the wall of trophies 
and the rooms of half models. And finally in the bar, perhaps the smallest yacht club bar that I have ever been in, the sacred altar of the six meter and the Sawanica Cup, the first American commissioned cup dedicated to U.S. British mat tracing. Remember that that ungainly America's Cup was a British creation. What made the six so unique was the mushrooming international nature of the competition. Hugh guided us through that history at his club. We'll hear more about the British American Cup, a milestone on both sides of the pond. For all of England's futility in the America's Cup over six decades since 1851, the British designer still had the secret sauce in his formula for the smaller boats. It was the UK that produced the prototypes of a modern six meter class, pushing the American enthusiasts to respond and challenge. If America was to have Hoyt, Crane, Stevens, Burgess as the spiritual successors to the master, Matt Harishoff, England had its own top designers, and we'll hear about them shortly. But first, from our partners, Windcheck and Team One Newport. Windcheck Media with Windcheck Magazine. If you haven't already seen the November-December double issue with our article on classical model yachting and the Dragonflight DF95, go on the website or find a copy at your own boating retail store. In the new February issue, read about the SNS Twins, Finisterre and Fidelio. The tale of two boats with radically different career paths. Remember, the website, windcheck.com. And Team One Newport, innovating for the serious sailor. With those brands you know, Patagonia, Gill, and the new stuff. Hopefully, you've turned the page on 2020. Visit them at the web. Read those emails featuring right now the newest items for winter. We'll stop by their Thames Street store in Newport and dream about fair winds and favorable current in 2021. And read about Team One's founder, Martha Parker, in a feature new to the magazine. And remember our sponsorship contest. We will be having a contest. You suggest a sponsor, we get it, and you get a free historical account of your classic boat. If you have a historic house, you probably have a plaque on it. For your classic boat, we'll take you back through your boat's history and provide the memento for your bookshelf. Reach us at tcdforsale2 at gmail.com for more information. Let's time travel back to the 20s, 1920s. It's nuts. Warren Harding is president. Calvin Coolidge has two more years to cool his heels before Harding departs. The troops are home. The 1918 Spanish flu has run its course. Markets are up. Prohibition has arrived with a ticket to stay around until FDR's time. And keelboat racing on both sides of the Atlantic is red hot. 1921 will mark the first running of a series, which after the match racing Sawanica Cup, established the American format of a whole new form of yacht racing, the team race. That event is the British American Cup. Hugh Jones brings us the background 
of how the BAC started in Cowes with a British victory, bringing the cup back to Oyster Bay in 1922. The British six-meter fleet initiated the event in its home waters of Cowes. Hughes says that you can see the racing by signing on the net with, quote, British American Cup 1921 Cows. And voila, a set of Bacon's images pops out. You can see a fleet of some dozen or so first-generation English sixes with a few American mixed in, floating at a light air start. The challenge was then negotiated to bring the event to Oyster Bay the following year. This fall, 2021, is the 100th anniversary of the BAC, and the British are coming, just not in sixes, Hugh notes. It's a momentous fall coming up in October, with the simultaneous 150th birthday of Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club. It was a time of transition between the old first-generation pre-war designs and the new sleeker, more powerful, taller-rigged second-generation boats built to the second international rule provisions. On the American side of the Atlantic, gentlemen designers, Clinton Crane, Frederick Hoyt, and others, were designing sixes to this new second international rule for a new class of post-Gilded Age owner-skippers. We introduced our native designer, Clinton Crane of Oyster Bay, in part one of the series. His schooner and Demian had set the transatlantic record only to see it broken within a number of years by Atlantic and Charlie Barr. But he came to dominate the American six-meter designs of the early to mid-1920s with beautiful, sleek, long, overhung lines. When you say Crane in the 1920s, you see Clady, Lanai, Akaba, Lucy. But his rivals were still Brits. When you say British sixes, they say... Fife on the Clyde, the house of Fife. Let's hear from my sixes ace. My cousin Peter Taylor tells us more about Fife. William Fife III was a chip off the block of Harrisoff. He was a third generation designer. His grandfather William had designed working boats. His father William II built his first small boats on the slipway of the family boatyard, which in reality was a shed on the beach at Fairley on the Firth of Clyde in Scotland. But like Captain Ned's but like Captain Nat's designs, Fife boats had a look. Both pen designs, whose boats rarely resemble one another, except for the fact that they were all aesthetically exceptional. Like Harrisoff, Fife skirted the edges of the scientific approach and preferred to design yachts on the basis of half models. But the unmistakable elegance of his designs was frequently accompanied by good performance. Fife was about combining the elegance of classic lines with the innovative ideas. He did the first 12 meter to the modern rule in 1922, and in 1925 was the first British designer to employ a Bermudian mainsail on the 15 meter Halloween. To the British sailing gentlemen, Fife built the Rolls-Royce of sixes. My own Fife experience has been right here in Oyster Bay. I sail occasionally in a Fife 8-meter right off Sawanica. How could one forget? Defender and Invader, part of Oak Cliff's classic fleets. 
46-foot black and white, newly built 8 meters, both with a totemic carved dragon of fife on their stems. Like a modern Viking longship, their wakes are silent, the boats are slippery. These were built from scratch by Don Costanza and Greenport and are modern museum pieces of the meter rule. Fife had rivals, for example, the Laws family. Remember from part one, Gilbert Laws was the designer and skipper of Dormy. Dormy was the first gold medal winner in sixes in an Olympic yachting event. First time sixes were included, 1908. The first and second generation of sixes were penned in the UK by Family Fife and the Laws. Remember the Dean of American Yacht Design in 1920 was still Nat Harrisoff. The America's Cup boats were still being built on Burnside Street in Bristol. NGH had Rhode Island to himself, but these British designers had the marine technology of the entire British Isles to draw from. Their test beds were the Solent and the Clyde. There on the Clyde in Glasgow was the world's largest shipbuilding industry. Clyde shipyards were the epicenter of the booming ocean liner business. White Star, Cunard, and the Brits speed-tested at Cowes in the Solent, playground of the English royalty. By 1920, it was a friendly yachting duel between the former pesky colonists and the current British yachting empire, and the empire was winning. Long Island Sound, the Solent, and the Clyde remained the Sixes racetrack until World War II shut them down in 1938. Hundreds of boats were built, transported across the Atlantic, and set up to race in pursuit of a growing number of cup events. We obtained a memo from the Royal Yacht Squadron, the Castle, Cows, Isle of Wight, PO31, and QT, announcing the 1995 running of the British American Cup. It was held in Sigma 33s. But, and this memo tells quite eloquently the backstory of the British American Cup from the British point of view. Peter Taylor, our colleague, provides the account. The memo on the BAC reads, and he quotes. The memo read, and I quote, The British American Cup takes place in cows between 11th and 15th September 1995. Sigma 33 yachts will be used for the match, and the teams will consist of four boats raced by a crew of five. The series will be sailed over a maximum of seven races. New paragraph. The British American Cup, one of the oldest and most prestigious in, the team, in team racing, started back in 1921 when the clubs of the Royal Yacht Squadron, the Royal Thames, the Royal London, and the Royal Victoria Yacht Clubs were joined by the Royal Clyde and the Royal Northern Yacht Clubs for a new competition. The idea of the regatta was to encourage international team racing. The agreement under which the races were to be held was drawn up between the British clubs and the Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club from Long Island near New York. Racing has been taking place between these groups ever since open to all comers. Sounds very collegial and democratic, doesn't it? The memo continues. 
The first regatta took place off Cowes on July 21, 1921, and was won by Britain. The outcome of the first series was such a success, with Britain taking possession of the first trophy following wins in 1923 and 1924, that a second series was proposed. So get this set of rules. You alternate sites, you race four times, whoever wins three times retires the trophy. End of series. Not your garden variety scoring system. So going forward from 1921 to 1924, the first country to win three matches would take the series. The next series started on the Clyde in 1928, and the British won by three races to one. The Clyde proved to be the last time that Britain won the Cup for many years. Thanks, Peter, for that. In the golden ages of the Sixes, in the next episode on the 1930s, we'll tell you how America triumphed from 1930 until the outbreak of the war. But the 1995 memo sums up how American dominance happened with characteristic British understatement. Quote, The decline of six-meter racing on the Solent and the rise of a young designer by the name of Olin J. Stevens combined to create an era of American supremacy. For all of you keeping score, on the massive Sawanica trophy wall, I counted nine British-American cups on the shelf. Yes, that is dominant. There are two overarching themes, though, to sixes in the 1920s. First is the intense competition among designers to deliver, deliver speed under the new second international rule. The baton was being passed from the old designer to the new. The second is the appearance of iconic sixes that sail and go fast almost a hundred years after their launching. Remember the first part of our series, Dawn of the Sixes, started in the 1890s in the swirl of controversy of who sets the rules of the design, driven by our now familiar iconic designer, NGH, Nathaniel Green Harrisoff, making the rules to confirm his hold on American Cup yachting. Going into the 20th century, the iconic Nat Harrisoff, the Wizard of Bristol, was conceiving and delivering America's Cup boats one after another, financed by Gilded Age clients who were buying his motor launches and then creating syndicates to foot the enormous bills of the ever-growing scale of an America's Cup boat. Huge skimming dishes with disposable metal hulls and enormous sail plans. Sounds familiar, right? Harrisoff showed minimal interest in sixes. Most of his day sail boats, from the 12 and a half to the Illarion to the S-boat, came about before the sixes were in full bloom. The six meter that carried a Harrisoff mark in the 1920s was from his son. Our boats were more prominent in his design book. This left the market for six designs open, not to the traditional designers born in the 1870s like Crane, but to unusual designers with the names 
some of which are known today as Sawanica royalty. One would be Frederick Hoyt, who has a very special distinction among naval architects, that he survived a certain infamous 1912 ocean liner accident. A good friend, Woody Swain, who is the uber-talented designer of the Conversations logo that you all see, is more importantly a world-class authority on the ship and its mishap. And he tells the story of Frederick Hoyt on that chilly night in the North Atlantic on the Titanic. Tom, <laughs> Frederick Hoyt's escape from the Titanic was about as hairy as it gets and worthy of its own podcast. At 39, Hoyt and his wife, Jane, booked passage in a first-class cabin on the White Star Liner for 90 pounds, about $15,000 today. On the morning of April 15th at 2 a.m., two and a half hours after Titanic struck the berg and just 20 minutes before her final plunge, the Hoyts found themselves among straggling passengers on the officer's deck on the port side, now strangely deserted considering everyone else was up on deck scrambling and that it was every man for himself. With the ship now listing badly, all lifeboats had been launched and 1,500 were still aboard. There was a remaining emergency kind of contraption still on deck with a cork hull and canvas side. There were four of them called a collapsible. Jane Hoyt was hustled into it by Titanic's second officer, along with other women. Remember, on British ships, it was women and children first. This was the infamous collapsible D, filled with just 21 passengers, including three crew, in a boat designed to hold 49. Now, it was said Titanic's officers wanted to launch that boat as quickly as possible before it was rushed by mobs. But every other lifeboat left the liner also half-filled, as we know. But all of that, all of that was to come out later in the U.S. Senate and British hearings. Meanwhile, with all hell breaking loose, as Walter Lord recounts in A Night to Remember, Hoyt calculated where his wife Jane's collapsible boat was, leapt over the railing into 32-degree North Atlantic water, and swam for it. Hoyt guessed well, as Walter Lord said, and was hauled out of the water, soaking wet, into the last loaded lifeboat off the ship. Nevertheless, with a coat thrown over him by Jane, who didn't recognize her husband at first, he withstood freezing temperatures all night in that collapsible, and he helped row it until it was spotted at dawn by the rescue ship Carpathia. I'm convinced Hoyt's lifetime experience with boating and yachts and the rowing saved his life so that you, Tom, can tell the rest of his story in a moment. But years ago, a woman told me her father-in-law, another passenger who made it through that night on Titanic, survived because he rowed at Yale and that pulling an oar kept him alive. An old high school friend of mine who was a coxswain at Henley and who still coaches crew told me men like Hoyt were used to being out in the cold and in wet boats for long hours. And long hours of steady state rowing, as it's called, for endurance 
would not only keep them warm, but from succumbing to hypothermia, which ultimately happened to many in those lifeboats, even if they weren't wet. That plus a good mental attitude. The fact remains, though, that Hoyt was one of only two or maybe three people, no more than that, plucked from the Atlantic that night who survived to tell the tale. And he continued to offer the yachting world his thinking for another 28 years. Frederick Hoyt died in Larchmont, New York in 1940 at age 67. Woody, thanks for giving us the story of Frederick Hoyt and the Titanic. Only a decade later, Frederick Hoyt, with a night to remember out of his brain, went head-to-head with Clinton Crane to design the New Age post-war six meters. The adoption of the new rating rule, the Second International, set off a building boom for boat designers for the decade. The architects were cranking out sleek, long overhang designs for the new class of post-Gilded Age owner-skippers, who might take a pro or two along in the quest to win in qualifiers to represent the America in these new international regattas. But before they knew it, by the end of the 1920s, they would be looking over their shoulder right behind them. 36 years younger, but blessed with the sponsorship of Mr. Crane and his gracious support, came the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig combined of naval architects. He was the complete boat designer a talent born in 1908 who had put his first six on the water 150 days before Black Monday in 1929. Here we have the designer for the modern age, Olin J. Stevens, who embraces technology the way Captain Nat had a generation before and would transform the role of the yacht designer from the traditional artist of hull and rig to a modern manager of math and physical sciences applied to scientific yacht design. What about Stevens? What was so special? And not just that he lived and sailed until he was 100, but because no designer in history, save Harrisoff, has had such a stylistic impact on the way boats are put together under and over the waterline. And the story of the six meter in the 1930s is the story of Olin. We'll hear much more about that in part three. Let's get right to Olin Stevens. There is so much to say about a man who was still thinking about boats in the 21st century. He was born April 13, 1908, when the New York Yacht Club, where he joined in 1930, gave him a party. He was almost 100. The word was he wanted to drive himself. John Rumenier, as the New York Yacht Club historian, has written a life summary of Olin, and captures his laconic but encyclopedic style. Olin said it was simple. Quote, I was lucky. I had a goal. As far back as I can remember, I wanted to design fast boats. Unquote. Sounds like Carlton Mitchell talking about his mission to write about sailing. He was raised in New York City. He learned his sailing in family-owned boats on Cape Cod with father and younger brother Rod Jr., he learned sailing in a series of small boats. His education was supposed to start at MIT in 1926, but an illness sent him home, and from there, and as I quote, 
I started my career with the tools of observation and intuition, to which quantitative analysis has been gradually added. Whenever possible, I studied lines and tried to see the way shape was coupled to performance. He wrote this in his autobiography, All This and Sailing Too. Highly recommend it. Sounds like Harrisoff? Sounds like Fife? No way. I always assumed that Owen was born with a test tank in his backyard. He was a by-the-numbers designer. By 1928, he was working in the Nevin shipyard on City Island as a draftsman. He was sailing regularly at Larchmont in the six meters, then the hot racing class of the day, with designer sailors like Clinton Crane and the Hoyts and C. Sherman Hoyt, Payne and Gardner from Boston. There's a big portrait of Sherman Hoyt in the Sawanica bar. Hugh Jones, our Sawanica guide, refers to him as, quote, Sawanica royalty. No explicit relationship between the Hoyts, but Frederick and C. Sherman were constantly collaborating on projects. Owen's first published design appeared in the 1928 yachting, Ghost. And from there to the 1938 launching of Goose flowed a set of the fairest sixes in the land. He said, and I quote, In any design, the most important factors of speed seem to be long sailing lines and large sail area with moderate displacement and small wetted surface. Then comes beauty, by which is meant clean, fair, pleasing lines. In 1929, Owen had set up an office next door to Nevins with Drake Sparkman, a successful yacht broker, to form Sparkman Stevens, Inc., S&S. With local designs and ocean racing, he got his design model in his head. When his own father commissioned S&S No. 4, the 52-foot Durade, it looks like he was thinking 6-meter. Tall Bermuda rig, narrow beam, lead ballast deep in the keel, and sophisticated steam bent frame. Built at the Miniford Yard, under the eye of his brother, Durade went to win the Transatlantic, which earned the brothers a ticker tape parade up Broadway on their return. In the meantime, the bar walls at Sawanica tell you how busy he was in sixes. On the west wall of the bar, under the masterworks of Clinton Crane, Lanai, and Akaba, there they are an array of half-models, impressive, the work of a designer not yet 40. Jill, Bobcat 2, and his late 30s breakthroughs, Lenoria and Goose. Late in 1929, just 21, young Stevens had designed his first six, called Thalia, for Louis G. Young of Rye, New York. She was raced in the Bermuda Cup the following spring and did not distinguish herself. But no worries. He turned out Mist in 1930, a boat with the distinction of being the first boat with a loose-footed main. Owen produced three other boats in 1930 into the teeth of the gathering depression, Comet, Meteor, and Cherokee. All around boats with Cherokee having the longest span of race. When the British invaded for the BAC that season, it was the team made up of 
Lucy and Mars, the two crane boats, Aphrodite, designed by and sailed by C. Sherman Hoyt, the master of ceremonies for sixes at Suanica, and Olin's new Cherokee. They took four straight from the British invaders. Cherokee went on to win the YRA title, was runner-up in the 1931 Gold Cup, and was still fast enough to make the U.S. team all the way in 1935. Between 1930 and 1936, American Sixes had not lost so much as a race to British-built craft. Drake Sparkman did admit that it was touch-and-go with some of the Scandinavian boats. The colonists had beaten the empire. By 1934, there were some new guns in town, with designers like Bill Luters and his radical-keeled, sharp-ended sixes like Challenge and Rebel, and even self-designed boats from talented sailors like the Wittens. The competition to produce the quickest boat each season was intense. The six-meter game was afoot. New designers, old owners, new helmsmen, and amateur teams were pushing the class forward. Based on the media coverage, the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, the Sixes held their own, and that was in the presence of competition for attention with the old America's Cup coming back with the J-Boats, starting with Enterprise in 1930 through Ranger in 1936. J-Boats were four times the size of a six-meter, but the mighty Sixes held their own with the yachting public. We have a pair of narratives running through the podcast of this Day of the Sixes. We started in part one with the story of the amateur designer, Clinton Crane, and the other narrative, a string of extraordinary boats that went fast over a long period of time. We'll tell the story in the history of two of these boats, Madcap and Lucy. Madcap, Hugh Jones's boat, one of the first built to the second rule, launched in 1924. Frederick Hoyt, Mr. Titanic, designer. And the second is a seemingly immortal boat named for a young hotshot's mate, Lucy. Today, Lucy II, still considered the ultimate boat designed by Clinton Crane. For Madcap, we are fortunate to have a set of reporters like no others. First, the granddaughter of the first owner, Henry Maxwell. Our friend Carol Connor from Noank, Connecticut. And the former Sawanica Commodore, Hugh Jones, who sails the light air wonder in evening summer sailing in Oyster Bay. It's the story of a boat built in 1924 for the second BAC that was held in the U.S. In the upstairs hall of Sawanica is a series of sepia pictures of the start of the first British American Cup in 1922. It's blowing stink from the northwest with big seas on the sound like you get it's six miles across. The boats thrashing about ready to start are really first-generation sixes. Short jib hoists turned up dens. They literally look more like stars than the sixes we know. Two years later, in 1924, the boats designed to the second international rule really look much more like the sixes 
that we identify. Hugh tells the story of how the madcap generation of sixes came to be, and the early history of the boat. Our friend Carol Connor's grandfather, Henry Maxwell, commissioned her. You can see Henry in a charming picture in the gallery, out for a row with the kids in their model boats. We have pictures in the gallery of Madcap and other second-generation rules boats. Take a look. Madcap and other boats of its time most closely resemble an International One design, IOD, on a protein diet. Plumper with the same rig dimensions, non-overlapping jib. Bernaz, the Norwegian builder who was to take that shape and create a one design class that still numbers over 125, put his version on the water in the early 1930s. Fleets at Marblehead and Larchmont picked it up quickly. Madcap was rebuilt in a major restoration in 2008 at the IYRS shop in Newport, Rhode Island. Let me see if I can do the justice to the odyssey of Madcap returning to competitive form from relative obscurity. Madcap had found herself shipped south to an owner in North Carolina and converted, as numerous sixes were, into fast pocket cruisers. You buy yourself an old six cheap, put in a metal mast, figure out an engine, put on a cabin house, and build in some bunks, and you have yourself a fast 35-foot weekender. Prior to the six-meter worlds held in 2009 in Newport, the search was on for sixes to get to the starting line. A Rhode Island syndicate, headed by Tom Fair, brought her to Newport. Off came the deck. The rest of the wood was solid, but the big challenge was coming up with a six-meter spruce mast. What would it look like? Dave Pedrick's office conjured up specifications and calculations of a spar to replace the metal stick. Complete with new rigging, Madcap was again raceworthy. Hugh bought her after the 2009 Worlds in 2014, knowing she had been a Sawanica boat launched in 1924 in an attempt to qualify for the U.S. team for the BAC in that year. She didn't make it, but Madcap continued to compete as a light air specialist. Based on my Oyster Bay sailing experience with Dolphin over the last five years, I'll take Madcap any day. Take a look at the terrific pictures from Carol of her grandfather's boat in the gallery. I feel like I've done a good sailing deed here, reuniting a long-lost classic boat with its relatives. We're looking forward to seeing Hugh Jones and Carol Maxwell Connor on Madcap competing, maybe in 2021. Our other featured boat for the 20s and early 30s epitomizes classic lines with an association with one of the truly great sailing personalities of his day. She is Lucy too. He is Briggs Cunningham. Cunningham is a podcast of his own, and we'll say more about that in episode three. The boat's name, Lucy Two, is immortal in the lore of the six-meter. It's the last six-meter done by Crane in 1931, and arguably his best. Lucy was in the final line of boats built to the second meter rule. She was built in the Nevins Yard on City Island, and she was named after Briggs Cunningham's first wife, Lucy Bedford Cunningham Warner, who lived to be 104. Lucy was named to three success 
British American Cup teams, her last in 1936. She's the only crane design to stay in major competition after World War II. We'll hear a lot more in Episode 3. Today, Lucy, Lucy 1, was the former Akaba renamed by Cunningham before he built Lucy 2. Lucy 2, today, in the classic boat stable of Matt Brooks. If there was a floating museum of 20th century classics, Durade and Lucy, Matt would be holding a Matisse and a Picasso. Lucy 2 is probably also the best documented classic six of all time. Matt Brooks has been the force behind the international class, keeping extensive archive, looking for information on the 1,300-odd boats thought to be built. As far as I can see, Lucy's the only six-meter I saw with its very own detailed website. Look at the photos in the gallery. Up in the air on a crane, no pun intended, one can really appreciate those long, flowing Lucy Two lines. Briggs Cunningham's home yacht club was Pequot in Southport, Connecticut. His father-in-law went in on the boats with him. With Lucy, he was sailing what was considered Clinton Crane's finest creation. He switched to an SNS design Lulu later in the 30s, and he may have regretted it. But he would always tell you that Lucy Bedford and the namesake boat were his great loves. Six-meter sailing in the 1920s revolved around one club. That would be Sawanica. Go into the Sawanica bar. Look west. On the wall is 20 years of design history. The 10 years of the 1920s starts from the top. The top, Lanai, 1925. Clinton Crane's prototype for the future Lucy. Below Lanai, Akaba, 1927. Crane, Briggs Cunningham's first six, then renamed for his bride-to-be, Lucy One. From there, with the exception of two looters' designs of 1932 and 1934, Rebel and Challenge, cool gray boats with the looters' sheer and ends. The board of models working down is all S&S. The sixes are marked on the half-model plaque, Olin J. Stevens. And the boats there are Jill, 1930, owned by the Habermeyers, Bobcat 2, 1931, Meyer, and at the bottom of the stack, the bottom three that are the triumvirate that confirms Stevens' fame as the most famous designer of sixes. Jin, that's D-J-I-N-N, 1938. Medalist at the Olympics as late as 1952, which was the last games for the sixes. Lenoria, a mystical name. Actually, it means a certain oil deposit in West Texas. 1938, gold medal winner. And the mystical goose, 1938, sailed, disassembled. The stern is actually installed on version one on the wall on the south side of Sawanica's fire, fireplace mantel. You must look at this in the gallery. Rebuilt, as we find out in episode three, 
amid numerous controversies. The photos in the gallery do not do justice to this three-dimensional, half-model elegance. I could stand and stare at this array of nine models forever. 1925 at the top, 1938 at the bottom. But it wasn't all about the boats. What about the people? The 30s for the 6s brought to the forefront some compelling characters, not to be rivaled until the golden age of the 1960s in the America's Cup with 12 meters. Sailors like Briggs Cunningham, Swede Witten, The Shields, Arthur Knapp. The 6 has always been a boat that owners drove. Sitting in the dining room of Sawanica is the perpetual trophy, 1931, for the British American Cup. In a four-foot-high glass case is an exquisite silver fully-rigged replica of a second-generation six-meter. The magnificent trophy for the British American Cup bears the names of the winners in 1931. They are Roosevelt, Cunningham, Meyer, Witten. They were the top dogs of the six-meter devotees sailing in Oyster Bay. Their battles and sixes formed the base of the cadre of sailors that propelled American sailing into the modern age. They became writers and editors and financial people. They were the first helmsmen of the Twelves that came out in 1958 with the modern era of the Twelve Meters. Cunningham, Shields, Knapp. They were the designers staying up late to get the jump on the other guy in the U.S. and in Europe. Crane, Stevens, Hoyt, Fife, Ass. We have our own work cut out for us, covering the designers, sailors, teams, and competitions that kicked off in 1921 with the British-American Cup and lasting until the war shut the circuit down. There is a massive amount of information. We believe that Mystic Seaport has as many as seven dozen boxes of information on the sixes. Among all the fervor of the competition, it was the owners and drivers with boats that seemed larger than life. The sixth had become the base of the international movement in sailing that even with World War II's long interruption made the sport a truly worldwide phenomenon and democratized it from a rich man's game of patrician owners and professional crews to a rapidly moving stage for aspiring amateurs. How about a preview of part three? I'll bet you can't wait. We'll bring it out in a couple of weeks. The Golden Age of the Sixes. Let's start in 1930. Back to 1930, depression. It was Herbert Hoover. The crash was a memory of only a few months. In the 1920s, about a hundred of the 1300-odd sixes that we can still identify were built in North America. Keen competitors built a new boat every year. By 1930, there was a proliferation of competitive events. The great American events, the Granddaddy, Sawanica Cup, the British American Cup, Bermuda's Cup, Scandinavian's Gold Cup. And the six meter was the weapon of choice, not only for 20th century modern match racing, but for the invention of team racing. The fleet of sixes had grown around the Western world Yes, the world's economy would falter, 
that Six Meter Mania rolled on. So come back and listen with us. Part 3, The Golden Age of the Sixes. Thanks to our participants, Peter Taylor, Woody Swain, and our very own guide to Sawanica, Hugh Jones. Thanks to you, our subscribers, for listening. Tell your friends. Sign up. Write a review. Thanks. Remember, we have a new Instagram at Conversations with Classic Boats. New pictures go up regularly. Check out our new gallery feature on the website to see more classic images. And if you come up with some of your own, let us display them for you. Carol Connor was the source of the fabulous pictures of Madcap. Fair sailing. Come hear us again. The producer of Dawn of the Sixes is Ned Darling, working from Beecham, Vermont. Come back and hear us on Conversations with Classic Boats. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang on.